I thank God for all who have led us so beautifully in worship today. We are beginning a new sermon series for the season of Lent. The title of the series is Harbingers of the Cross. We will be looking at major moments of Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life that lead up to his death on the cross. And today I want to draw your attention to John chapter 13. I'll read verses 1 through 17 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is Keep the Towel. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you, for he knew who was to betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. 
And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Lately, I have been thinking about baptism, partly because we had such a wonderful baptismal service a couple of weeks ago in the well, and partly because this text evokes baptism with its talk of water and washing. Specifically, I've been thinking that at every baptism I have ever attended, the same thing happened after the person emerged from the water. Somebody handed them a towel. When I've seen people baptized in rivers, somebody handed them a towel when they came out. When I've seen people baptized in sanctuary baptistries or portable baptismal pools, somebody handed them a towel afterwards. When I've seen people baptized in a metal tub, when I've seen people baptized in a YMCA swimming pool, somebody handed them a towel when they got done. Even when I've attended baptisms that were conducted by sprinkling rather than by full immersion, there was water, then there was a towel. Here at Second Baptist Church, we provide towels for every baptism. You can bring your own towel if you want, but we will have stacks of towels ready to go. Although water is the key ingredient for baptism, the towel is no ancillary aspect of the ceremony. The towel carries its own symbolic meaning. For the Savior who showed us how to be baptized in water also showed us what to do with a towel. John reports that on the night before he died, while eating supper with his disciples, Jesus got up from the table, laid aside his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Before the Romans stripped him bare, he removed his own robe. Before the mockers put thorns around his head, he put a towel around his waist. Before the crowds humiliated him, he humbled himself. Keep in mind, this is the same Jesus who said, the Father and I are one. This is the same Jesus who said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is the same Jesus who said, before Abraham was, I am. This is the same Jesus who was there at the beginning of all things, who was with God and who was God. He laid aside his robe and wrapped a towel around himself. This 
change of clothes changes our conception of God. This simple adjustment of attire adjusts our entire understanding of divinity. For Jesus put on the uniform of a first century slave. Jesus, who is God incarnate. Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Jesus, who is God in human form, dressed like a lowly servant. Then he poured water into a basin, washed the disciples' stinky feet, and dried them with a towel in order to grasp the full significance of this singular scene, we must realize that ancient people walked almost everywhere they went. They walked in sandals, or they walked with bare feet. They walked through dirt and muck on the unpaved roads of Palestine. They walked through manure that was routinely left on the ancient ground. They walked through human excrement, which was regularly dumped out into the streets. It reminds me of a mission trip I took to a, another country. When I got sewage on my shoes, simply walking down the street, despite my best efforts to avoid it. The situation was similar in first century Palestine, except they did not have modern-day shoes to cover the entire foot. Ancient feet, therefore, could be pretty nasty. And that's not even to mention warts, corns, bunions, blisters, gout, fungus, ingrown toenails, toe jam and other unpleasantries of human feet. Since ancient feet tended to get filthy, even when traveling short distances, the washing of feet was an act of hospitality customarily extended to guests. When a guest entered somebody's home, a servant would kneel, with a basin and wash the grime from their feet. After hand washing their feet with water, the servant would then dry the guest's feet with a towel. Washing feet was one of the most menial chores in the ancient world. Since it was a distasteful duty, if not altogether disgusting, it was usually reserved for the lowliest of servants. One ancient Jewish source said that Jewish servants should not be required to wash feet, but it should be left for Gentile servants and women servants to do. An ancient story called Joseph and Asenath featured a woman named Asenath, 
who was engaged to a man named Joseph. She offered to wash his feet as an expression of her profound love for him. But Joseph declined, saying a servant girl should do it. An ancient rabbinic story dealt with foot washing as well. The story goes that a teacher named Rabbi Ishmael returned home from synagogue one day to find his mother there wishing to wash his feet for him. But the rabbi refused to let her do so because the task was too degrading. Bible scholar Craig Keener adds that ancient disciples would do for their teachers almost anything a slave would do except deal with their feet which was considered too demeaning for a free person. Given this background, it is nothing short of astonishing that Jesus stood up from dinner, took a towel and a basin, and washed the feet of his disciples. Teachers did not do this for their students. Masters did not do this for their servants ever. According to Bible scholar Andrew Todd Lincoln, what makes the fourth gospel's account so extraordinary is that there is no parallel in extant ancient literature for a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. In short, no ancient source known to humanity. No Jewish nor Greco-Roman source recounts a single instance in which a person of higher status freely washed the feet of someone with lower status. This simply did not happen except with Jesus. Imagine today a Fortune 500 CEO running out to get lunch for a temp. Imagine a four-star general shining the boots of a first-year private. Imagine a Supreme Court justice mowing an intern's yard. Imagine LeBron James carrying a rookie's luggage. Imagine Meryl Streep mopping floors late at night at the movie set. Imagine Harry Styles or Paul McCartney peeling bubblegum off of seat bottoms after a stadium show. Imagine the President of the United States of America cleaning the toilet at a Taco Bell bathroom. Only now are we even beginning to approach the backwardness of Christ the King wrapping a towel around himself. Only now are we even beginning to approach the absurdity of God incarnate stooping down to wash muck and manure off of feet he created. 
The ancient Christian Severian of Gabala said, He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped round himself a towel. He who pours the waters into the river tipped water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. Behold the staggering humility of the divine Savior. Had Christ lowered himself to the status of an angel, that would have been humble. Had he lowered himself to the status of a human ruler, that would have been quite humble. Had he lowered himself to the status of a common man, that would have been incredibly humble. But he lowered himself to the status of a servant, even the lowliest of servants. He left the highest station in heaven for the lowest station on earth. He left first place in heaven for last place on earth. The heavenly ruler of all things took the form of an earthly slave. His humility cannot be outdone because there's no place higher than whence he came and no place lower than whither he went. But his humility can be emulated his humility can be imitated. His humility can be embodied by his followers. I have set you an example, he says, that you also should do as I have done to you. The main point is not that the disciples are literally to wash other people's feet, but rather that we are to serve others with humble love. If our Lord and teacher humbled himself for our benefit, how could we refuse to humble ourselves for one another's benefit? If the divine Christ embraced such messiness in ministry, how could we not embrace the messiness of ministering to others? If God incarnate performed one of the lowliest acts of service imaginable. How could any of us possibly think that we're too good to bend low and get grimy for the gospel? At a church where I used to minister, some of the teenagers and adults went on a mission trip during the summertime. They traveled to another state to minister the gospel there. And while they were leading VBS for the children in that community and doing other things, these missionaries from the church acquired head lice from the people they were serving. It was a mess. It was such a mess that it reminded me of John chapter 13. The foot-washing Savior confirms that Christian ministry is not to be confused with classy 
ministry. The foot washing Savior confirms that sanctified ministry is not to be confused with sanitized ministry. The foot washing Savior further confirms that true greatness is found in loving service. You know, his disciples argued with one another about which one of them was the greatest. He said, wash one another's feet. The disciples desired to hold a crown or a scepter. He said, hold this basin. The disciples requested to sit on a lofty throne. He said, kneel on this floor. The disciples wanted to share his glory. He said, share my towel. Whoever wants to be the best then ought to keep the towel long after their baptism. Whoever wants to be the greatest then ought to see that just as baptism in water shows that we are initiated into a life of divine grace, so the towel we are handed afterwards shows that we are initiated into a life of serving others with humility. Whoever wishes to be number one, the cream of the crop, the most outstanding of all, might say with the poet Wordsworth, Give unto me, made lowly wise, the spirit of self-sacrifice. The foot washing was an emphatic demonstration that greatness is found in humbleness, that majesty is found in meekness, that sublimity is found in service, that illustriousness is found in lowliness, and that grandeur is measured by the metric of self-sacrificial love. All of this, of course, was a prelude to Christ's greatest act of service. When he lays aside his robe in verse 4, the same Greek word is used as when he talks about laying down his life in John 10. The laying aside of his robe signals how he would lay down his life. It's almost as if John, the gospel writer, is saying, you think this is laying something aside? Just wait till he gets to the cross. You think this is an act of service? Just wait till he gets to the cross. You think this is an example of self-sacrifice? Just wait till he gets to the cross. You think this is an instance of self-lowering care for others? Just wait till he gets to the cross. You think this is a demonstration of love? Just wait till he gets to the cross. You think this is stunning humility? Just wait 
till he gets to the cross. You think this is backwards? <laughs> Just wait till he gets to the cross. You think this is an absurd thing for God incarnate to do? Just wait till he gets to the cross. You think this is a mind-boggling display of the Most High God taking a lowly position for our tremendous benefit? Just wait till he gets to the cross. You think this is a washing? You think this is a cleansing? Just wait till he gets to the cross and washes away all our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Since Christ has done so very much to serve us, how could we possibly devote our lives to anything but serving him humbly and serving others humbly in his great and glorious name? How could we who have been baptized in water take anything into our hands afterwards? but a towel. Amen.